it looks like when you say that you're back to like a Fregian sort of view of propositions. Like here's this yeah. proposition that's out there representing the water bottle as right. being blue and having these truth conditions, right? Yeah. Um, and your mind, you're just kind of seeing it and latching onto it. It's like it's out there as a as a unified whole. Yeah. And your mind's kind of latching onto it. I don't know why. I don't know why. No, that's good. Know. I like that. That's <laughs> good imagery. Pl- it's like there's a planet in here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is another very special one, and I have another very special guest with me. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the argument from intentionality for the existence of God, and I have with me Dr. Lorraine Giuliano uh, Keller. And we're going to be talking about her contribution to the two dozen or so arguments for God. This book is fantastic. I love it. It's edited by Jerry Walls and Trent Doherty. Um, hers is the first essay up, and it's fantastic. This is like the stuff that I'm into. I love getting conceptual with it. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. It's the best way to support the podcast. If you like this, if you want to see me continue to do this. Uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can join for as little as three dollars a month, and as much as like a hundred. So that would be sick. Either way, uh, any support helps. Really, really appreciate that. You can also leave me a five star review if you're if you're watching the or if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts. Again, that'd be huge. So uh, without further ado, let's just jump right in with Dr. Keller and get into the argument for God from intentionality. <clears throat> Dr. Keller, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I, I really, really like your argument. Um, I, I think it's super intriguing. Uh, before we jump in, uh, I, I want to read a quote from that, that you quoted, um, just to give us a rough like sketch uh, overview of the argument. Uh, so you say, or actually, I can't remember if this was from Leibniz or not. Uh, I should know this, but I don't. I'm going to read it, and then maybe you can tell me. Truth involves representation. Something is true only if it represents reality as being a certain way, and reality is that way. But representation is a function of minds. So truth is mind-dependent. Yet yet there are truths that transcend the human mind. For example, eternal truths. So there must be a supreme mind with the representational capacity to think these transcendent uh, truths. Therefore, a supreme mind vis-a-vis God exists. I can't remember if that was you or if you're quoting someone. That's me. Awesome. All right. Cool. cool. But it, it, it's, it was set off kind of like a block quote because it's yeah. just um, supposed to give the rough idea of the argument, like as it's appeared historically, just trying right. to give a rough, intuitive sense of the argument before actually presenting a more rigorous yeah. Uh, version. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, well, before we get into the, the more rigorous uh, uh, formulation of it, um, how did you get into this argument? How did you get interested in it? Well, um, I, I was I was looking at your outline, <laughs> looking at that question, trying to remember myself how I got interested in it because I don't really remember. Um, but I think uh, really from um, just thinking about propositions. So my dissertation was on. Um, oh, sorry. My computer is doing something. And worse. Um, so um, it was on arguments for structured propositions. Oh, and cool. um, 
critically evaluating them and saying, really, there aren't good arguments for structural okay. propositions. That was kind of the verdict. Um, but um, so I was looking at uh, a lot at the work of like people like Scott Soames, um, Jeff King, um, and then also Peter Hanks. And they were um, really Soames had changed his view radically um, around the time that I was writing. And um, there and I noticed a lot of people going in this other direction. Right. So um, looking at propositions, uh, not so much as, um, you know, mind independent, intrinsically intentional abstract objects. Yeah. Um, it's complicated. So sure. whatever, you know, um, I feel like I'm stumbling a little bit explaining it. Um, so they're still viewing propositions as abstract objects, right? But yeah. but making the representational power and intentionality of propositions derive from um, token mental events or, or acts of predication or things like that, right? Yeah. And so um, really um, in some ways, going back to an earlier view, right? That would see propositions as judgments, right? And that's kind of the view that I call psychologism Right. Um, psychologism is one of those words where it's, you know, it's always dangerous to use it because it gets used <laughs> in so many different ways. That's kind of how I'm using it. Like okay. the idea that the fundamental bears of truth are like mental entities of some sort. Um, and so I felt like there's a weird similarity there, right, where it's kind of like they're going back to a more kind of psychologistic view of propositions, but not going all the way because realizing yeah. the shortcomings, you know, when you deny that propositions are these abstract kind of necessary necessarily existent objects and so um you know and i was just thinking like you know what the problems for psychologism are and then thinking well do those problems apply to this view and then that got me realizing like well a major problem is uh if you if you want to use kind of human um intentionality to ground the representational properties of all propositions you're not going to have enough right right because we want there to be this whole kind of boolean algebra of propositions you're not going to get that um you know, from, from human intentionality. And so, you know, that made me think like, well, you, you could get that if you had a divine mind. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Right. And so I thought like, oh, that's interesting. Like just looking at the shortcomings of this view kind of gives you a version of this uh, theistic argument. And so I think I think that sorry if that was too long. Winded, no, that was I think that, that's how that's it fantastic. Happened. Yeah. And my my audience um, should be pretty familiar with uh, these type of arguments because I I love divine conceptualism and I've had several people on to talk about them. So, um, yeah, feel free to go in as deep as you want on this stuff. Um, we're, I, I believe you did your dissertation at Notre Dame. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Were, were you, were, did you happen to like run into Josh Rasmussen there? Cause I think he was working on a structured view of propositions when he was there. I do know Josh. Um, we overlapped and we've talked over the years about uh, propositions and about our views too, just running into each other at, oh, cool. at conferences. And I think, um, I think we were both at, you know, the university of St. Thomas has a um, seminar mm. uh, they were doing in the summers, like two or three week seminar 
Um, okay. And I've been to a couple of those. I think one my husband John was in and one I was in, okay. um, but we both kind of hung out. And I, I remember seeing Josh at one of those and talking a lot about propositions with him. So cool. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really fascinating. Cause I've, I've thought about his view of structured propositions at, uh, in an argument for, you know, divine conceptualism. So it's fun that you're saying, no, no, we don't want structured propositions just really quick. Um, would you, do you still hold that view? Would you say that like propositions are unanaly- unanalyzable and just like brutally um, intentional or I guess not brutally because they're, if they're divine ideas or something, right? Yeah, no, I, so, um, so when I gave this argument, um, uh, it was based on sort of premises that I don't really accept, Okay. but it was more like, oh, you know, if you, if you accept these premises, here's a good argument for a, oh, sweet. For a yeah. divine mind, but I don't personally accept them. I, you know, with a lot of views in philosophy, I, I hold them rather lightly sure. because I just think philosophy is hard and I just kind of always want to be ready to change my mind. Yeah, um, follow the, yeah, good. Yeah. And follow the argument where it leads. Um, so I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I guess I just think there, um, there are lots of good reasons to not think propositions are structured. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of problems with the view. Um, and um, so it's more of like a negative argument that I have against, you know, thinking of propositions as being structured, but uh, not that I have such a great um, positive alternative. Yeah. Um, but I am, you know, sort of inclined towards a, a primitive entity, entity sort of view. Um, you know, um, Trent Merrick's recently, you know, in a did a great book where he defends a view like that. And um, George Beeler has a book, has a view like that. Um, yeah. That I'm also partial to that. Um, he kind of um, let his view lets him say a lot of stuff about structure without actually saying propositions are structured. Okay. And I kind of like that. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Um, yeah. well, uh, before, okay. One more thing before we get in. So uh, I'll change it up from the outline, but I, I, I like your argument because um, it's different than ones presented by like Greg Welty, James Anderson, um, uh, Proust and Rasmussen, where they go in for, they, they hone in or they focus in on the necessity of certain propositions. There are necessarily true propositions and, you know, you know, bracket off everything else. We'll just hone in on this home in maybe. Um, and then, so you need a divine, a necessary thinker in order to think that div- uh, necessary truth. And you're, you're not really, uh, it, it doesn't really matter about the necessity or a contingency of these. It's just like, there's this sheer huge amount of propositions. And so uh, a human mind or a finite mind couldn't do the trick of, of grounding all of these. So I, it's still in the same ballpark, but it's just uh, looking at different things. I think that's really fascinating. Does that sound, does that sound right? At least as an initial yeah, I mean, I guess I might put it a little differently. Okay. For so for me, it's um, it's not so much the amount of propositions. There could just be one uh, oh, okay. to to do the trick for my argument. Just that there are there are propositions, or there is at least one proposition that is not um, cognizable by a finite oh, right, mind. Right. right? Okay. So, um, I mean, I do think there are infinitely many. Yeah. So that's fine. But um, even if there were infinitely many, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. Um, uh, especially if you do the kind of maneuvers that Soames does with like systematicity and things like that. Okay. Um, and you know, depending on whether you're like a serious actualist or not kind of yeah. moves you can make to, um, you know, get around the representational force of the propositions. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's more about there being 
uh, certain kinds of propositions that aren't uh, thinkable by finite thinkers or aren't aren't entertainable, I guess I should oh, say. Yeah. Okay. But but yet we have evidence that um, those are true propositions that that we need them, right? Like we 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 know about them, but we can't cognize them ourselves. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. So I got kind of into the weeds a little bit um, with you know some some math to kind of yeah you know um, to make the case that we have to. Uh, to countenance these uh, propositions. But um, yeah, so the idea is just that there are, you know, we're, we're committed to these propositions existing because, you know, our best mathematical theories um, commit us to them. And yeah. so, um, you know, that that should be enough for philosophers. You know, we don't want to be telling mathematicians how to do their job. Right. I, mean, I think David Lewis has some, you know, famous quote about that. But, uh, but yeah, just going to kind of invoke his authority there <laughs> that's good yeah um well let's let's jump in on like the formalization then i have a slide for us hopefully this comes through there we go all right so uh folks at home sorry if this is a little small but uh, I'll, i'm going to read them for us and then we can uh look at especially two and five premise two and five so here's here's the argument uh premise one there are propositions non-linguistic entities that are fundamentally true or false in virtue of their representational properties Two, only thoughts are fundamentally true or false due to their representational properties. Three, so propositions are thoughts. Four, if propositions are thoughts, they are either human or divine thoughts. Five, but there are not enough human thoughts to play the role of propositions. Six, so propositions are not human thoughts. Seven, propositions are divine thoughts. Eight, if there are divine thoughts, then there is a unique divine thinker. Nine, therefore, there is a unique divine thinker. God. I love that. Um, and, and then you say, um, you, you say, let's focus in on uh, two and five, because there's going to be two different takes. Um, there's going to be the traditional conception of propositions, and then there's going to be propositional naturalists, and they're going to respectively take on premise two and five. Um, just real quick, what about what about one? Do, should we just say like, hey, look, this is for this is for like realists. Um, if you're not a realist, then you're just not going to like this argument. Um. So realists about propositions. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so I I think I try to word it so that um, it's pretty neutral about what propositions are, like what their nature is. Except, mm -hmm. I mean, well, it's not not terribly neutral. Um, but um, you know, they're non linguistic. But propositions could be thoughts. Um, they could be mental sentences of some sort. I mean, I guess it is non linguistic, <laughs> so maybe not mental sentences. But. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, but I, I think it depends on what you mean by realism, but there's yeah. something that plays the role of like fundamentally true or false things um, that are fundamentally true or false by virtue of their representational properties. And they're not like sentences of a language. Um, I can't okay. remember exactly what I was thinking there, but I think I was thinking more of like not sentences of like a public language, like a natural language. Okay. Um, because then that would be, you know, problematic for obvious reasons. Okay. So if someone um, doesn't hold to like the existence of abstract objects, um, would it, would premise one, could premise still, one still work on them? Um, yeah. I mean, if you believe in you, if you think thoughts are fundamentally true or false oh, yeah. in virtue of the representational properties, then you've got, um, you know, non-abstract things that, play the proposition role yeah and so i mean that's that's ultimately where this argument is going right saying right. like um if only thoughts 
um, have this, you know, feature of being fundamentally representational, then they have to play the role of propositions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, um, that's a really good point. Usually I'm used to, uh, Welty and Anderson's argument, uh, the Lord of non-contradiction where they, they have to like motivate, uh, they have to motivate, uh, that there are these such things as, as, uh, uh, abstract ob these prop uh, propositions which are abstract objects and then from there they move on to hey these are thoughts and here's a good reason for thinking their thoughts because of intentionality but this argument if, if you're like a psychologist psych psych uh, i don't know how to say that if you hold to psychologism or some kind of human conceptualist then look you don't have to do all this motivating work to say uh, let's you know let's be platonists about propositions or phrygian phrygian Phrygians about senses or something like that. You can just continue on in the argument. That's really fascinating. I like that. Well, it's nice to, to be able to bypass those issues. And I know, um, you know, Welty's view has been criticized for um, being, um, I guess, like a form of nominalism in sheep's clothing or something. Yeah. Um, right. That, yeah. oh, they can't really be abstract objects if they're um, thoughts. Right. And then, yeah. So he says, well, they're functional right there. They, they still play the same functional role for us as if they were abstract, but yeah. 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 Um, right. So, I mean, there'll be, you know, back and forth about that or whether that's really, you know, adequate for being an abstract object. I mean, you could say, I mean, the, the functionality could just be like, that's how we define propositions. They play the proposition roles or they play the property roles or whatever it is that you're talking about for whatever kind of object, but you might say, well, unless they have certain, you know, qualities they can't really count as being abstract right um yeah yeah well okay so then we kind of have uh so in defending pr uh, premise two only thoughts are fundamentally true or false due to their representational properties um yeah so the traditional conception i can't i can't tell if this if the traditional conception is committed to like platonism about this but what if what if the you know the platonist just comes back and says well there are these things, propositions, which are fundamentally true or false, uh, which, you know, thoughts that they serve as the content of thoughts. So maybe they're even more fundamental than thoughts are. Yeah, that would be the traditional conception. And yeah. that's that's okay. why this argument depends on a rejection of that. Um, yeah. Right. And so it would be accepted by people who reject the traditional conception. And that would be people in the kind of tradition of thinking about propositions before uh, you know, Bolzano and Frega and, and all those people yeah. um, for most of history. I mean, there are some exceptions. I know when I say propositions too, I mean, that's really like historians of philosophy would probably like balk at that because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking kind of loosely, but like things sure. that play the proposition roles, right? Um, yeah. I mean, you, you have early, some early kind of outliers, like the Stoics um, thing about meaning and um, like um, propositions kind of abstractly. Yeah. And um, I think like, Abelard has a view sort of like that. And there's some medieval uh, philosophers, theologians yeah. that have views like that. Um, so, but that's, so, but kind of like historically the dominant view is that, oh, you know, the fundamental truth bearers are, you know, mental or thoughts of some sort or mental entities, mental sentences of some sort. Um, and then, you know, huge shift with like Frege and the kind of anti-psychologistic arguments uh, from Frege and Husserl and stuff. Yeah. And then, um, and I think that's been kind of like the dominant view in analytic philosophy for people who do believe in propositions. It seems like, oh, they're abstract, they're mind and language independent, they're necessary, um, uh, there are an infinite number of them, et cetera. Um, and then it's just recently that that's kind of coming under attack with this 
you know, what I'm calling propositional naturalism. Yeah. And it's because a lot of the ways that you know, people like Scott Soames and Jeff King you know, talk about their view is they are really um, motivated by naturalistic concerns, right? Being able to give a naturalistic account of intentionality. Right. Um, and so um, the idea that, oh, there are these brutally representational abstract things out there just kind of doesn't sit well. I mean, there's no, um, like you might have a some hope of being able to naturalize the mind or naturalize, um, you know, mental representation, but there's zero hope of naturalizing, you know, brute representation by abstract objects. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, and, and there's a lot of criticism like, oh, this is just, this is spooky. This is just, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, an explanatory dead end. And, and why should we say things like this? And so, um, so that's kind of traditional conception of thinking of propositions is fundamentally um, representational has just really, you know, kind of come under attack um, from these guys. And so that's why I thought, okay, it's nice to like re-examine this argument um, because now this kind of more psychologistic friendly view yeah. um, is, is um, gaining traction among people that are talking about propositions. Yeah. Is, um, do you have a, do you have a, like, uh, yeah. Why should we, why should we, how, how do you motivate to, I guess, uh, for someone who, who is a, um, a Platonist about, uh, propositional about propositions? Like, do you, do you think that like, is the Benesaraf problem like a pretty big deal for them? Should they like not like, how do they access this realm? Like, is that, is that a big problem? Yeah. So that is a problem that people worry about that. Sorry, I didn't know which Manasseh problem you were talking about because oh, yeah, there are a few different ones right. or a couple different uh, ones. But yeah, the access, uh, the Manasseh access problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, that the idea that, um, you know, if we if we uh, have these abstract objects in our ontology, um, how are, are our minds accessing them? Like, how do we know about them? Um, how do we, they're, they're a causal, right? So, um, I mean, I, I think that is, that is a worry that a lot of people have. Um, I, that, that does come up um, in the criticisms of like Soames and, and King and stuff like that too. Um, uh, so this idea that um, somehow our minds were grasping these uh, abstract primitively representational entities yeah. Um, there's, so there's this mysterious grasping relation, um, that people will invoke and it's like, well, what's that supposed to be? Um, interestingly, um, I was just, uh, thinking about this again, um, for Frege, like when he talks about thoughts, you know, so he, he uses the German word and I'm going to butcher the German cause I'm not like a native German speaker or anything, but I'm Gedanken, right? So okay. that's his word for, um, the things that play the role of propositions in his theory. And yeah. he, um, I think he says that they are, um, I think he says they're actual, um, which means that they, they do have some sort of causal powers. Um, oh, okay. So I, I, it made me want to revisit, like it's been a while since I've really looked at Frege and any death. I maybe want to revisit Frege's view about this. Um, so, but I, but I know, um, you know, when you think about it, it's like, well, what are we grasping? We're not gra like, it's not like anybody who believes in abstract propositions thinks you just kind of grasp a proposition um, yeah. with no intermediary. It's like, no, there's some sort of a sentence or some sort of a thought that has a proposition as its content. Right. And that is a concrete token of some sort. And mm -hmm. so 
um, you know, but then there's this whole like, well, question about like, well, what about the relation between that sort of um, vehicle, the representational vehicle yeah. and the proposition itself? And, and then you're going to have other, you know, issues there that are going to kind of, it's just like pushing the bump in the carpet. Yeah. So I think, um, so yeah, there are some serious worries there. Um, and then just, they're just, I mean, there's just a worry too about what exactly are we saying? Like, when we say that these things are, you know, inherently representational, like how, how can that be? Right. It just seems like mystery mongering of some sort. Yeah. Like why are they, how are they just like brutally intentional? They're just like these brutally intentional objects that just have always existed. And some of them seem like they should be tensed or something, or they're about certain things. They're, they're true at a time, but not another time. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. And and especially when we have other intentional things like thoughts in our disposal, which are super close to us because we have them. Right. Um, and so it's like, yeah, it, it seems like we have these other things that are intentional that are thoughts. And so it maybe a, a better explanation is that it, propositions are thoughts. Yeah. And so that's not exactly what people. So that's more like psychologism. Right. I mean, yeah. that's more like the traditional view. Like if you look, you know, propositions or judgments or something like that. But um so these guys, um, so like Soames um, and, and Hanks and others will say, uh, will identify propositions not with the token thoughts themselves, but with with types, right? Okay. So like for Soames, they are the um, types of um, certain kinds of acts of predication, yeah, right? And so um, the um, it's the 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 thought tokens that have the intentionality. Um, mm -hmm. And so the propositions are derivatively representational because of their relation to the thought tokens. So you've got these oh. types and they get their representational power from uh, the tokens. That's that's interesting. I need to check out uh, Soames work, I think, more. But that so prior to the, the token like instances, the types weren't intentional, like they weren't representational. Um. Because it seems like it's going backwards, right? It seems like the, the if the tokens are are giving the types their intentionality, then they're not inherently intentional, but they became intentional or something. Am I getting that yeah, wrong? Yeah, I mean, so right. So if you think, okay, well, what do you mean by types? Are types abstract objects that exist eternally and all that stuff? I mean, do they have all these sort of, you know, traditional abstract object uh, properties? Yeah. Um, and if so, it seems like they would pre-exist right. the tokens. So, um I mean, so Soames, he's not, um, I'm trying to remember ex his exact views about this stuff. It's been a while, but um, I know he's not a serious actualist. I don't think he's an actualist at all. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to say something false about his view, but um, so he really can avail himself of a lot of, uh, you know, um, he can make a lot of moves here to kind of get enough tokens by going beyond the actual world okay right um and so like oh well as long as there's like um you know somebody in some possible world some thinker in some possible world you know thinking you know making this act of predication that's enough for oh yeah uh for the representational um you know uh basis for the type yeah to be there right so okay yeah that's fat that's clever yeah that's fascinating um yeah Okay, I'll have to think about that one more.
um, I've heard that used against uh, Welty and Anderson's argument too, for like, like you need a necessary mind uh, in order to ground this necessary truth. And they might say, well, no, all you need is just a a thinker in every possible world. But then you go, well, maybe there's an empty possible world with no thinker. Um, but it would still be true that the law, the law of non-contradiction is applicable or something like that. Okay, yeah, so that's that's fascinating. The possible worlds move always gets me. It always catches me off guard. Um, so that's fun. So uh, let's move on to... Um, so that's the, the traditional conception. Maybe we can move on to uh, propositional naturalism, unless you have anything else to add on the traditional conception of why we might or how, how you might defend against that move. Yeah, we can move on. Okay, sweet. Yeah, so so um, I guess I, this might this is like an empirical fact or whatever, but like how, how popular is um, propositional naturalism? Is it, do you, do you see it like overtaking the traditional conception or? Yeah. I'm very bad at assessing things like that. Okay. Like somebody needs to just make like a fill paper survey on propositions on the, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and take a poll or something like that. Cause I, I really don't know, but I mean, there, so um, there's just so many weird different camps in philosophy too, and different like right. groups that talk to each other and stuff like that. So I feel like among like the group that I around when I go to conferences about propositions, it's a pretty popular uh, view though I do meet you know some people that are like this is just you know thank you for arguing against this view because it's horrible and why is this view taking over yeah. um, but another thing too that's been going on is increasingly um, more people have just been denying that propositions represent at all hmm. um, so like Jeff Speaks has that view um, Mark Richard um, I think Brian Pickle um, but a bunch of people that work on this stuff um, just will say like, you know, propositions don't represent at all. Um, and so um, they're also, I mean, that's just another way of like denying the uh, traditional conception of like yeah. the more Freggian or Freggian or however you say it. Yeah, I uh, Conception <laughs> of propositions I hear both ways. Yeah. Um, so that's another kind of um, view that's been gaining momentum. It's just like propositions have truth conditions, but they don't represent and you don't need to represent to have truth conditions. And there's like debates about that too. So, okay. Um, but yeah, so that's another. Um... So someone who, so like, like uh, if you presented this to like speaks, maybe he would be, um, maybe he would say he would just deny one because one, you know, there are propositions, non-linguistic entities that are fundamentally true or false in virtue of the representational, representational yes. properties. And you say, mm -hmm. no, we don't need representational properties for them to be true or false. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the people that deny the representationality of propositions would just deny one. Yes. Um, but that's, you know, I just, I was like, well, I'm just not talking to them. Yeah. Right. I right. can't, I can't, you know, there's always in philosophy, there's always somebody representing <laughs> some different view and you can't, you know, and I, and that's a very, um, I think that's a really new view. Like, I don't think that has a historical precedent. Sure. Um, and, um, it's not like uh, it's not like a really wildly popular view either. So I feel like it's safe to, you know, um, set that to the side. Um, yeah. For and for the sake of this sort of argument, like I just think like certain arguments are just not going to work on certain people. Like just you, you get right. a just if you want to convince them of a certain conclusion, you're going to have to just go with a different argument. Yeah, and that has to do with like the yeah, like the person relativity of of proofs or arguments. And there's luckily there's two dozen or so other ones, you know, they're in, right, in this exactly. book. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah. So can you uh, help us out? Like what, what, what is propositional naturalism before we, we go any further here? So it's just this idea that um, the representational um, or intentional properties of propositions um, derive from the representational properties of um, minds. Yeah. Right. Of agents. Right. And so and, and the usual story is uh, involves acts of predication. Mm -hmm. Right. So agents perform these acts of predication. And that's where you get um, uh, the representational power that yeah. uh, the, the, the types of those token acts of predication are propositions. And so they're getting their representational power. They're deriving it from the tokens. And um, so it's interesting because this does sort of come out of a, a tradition of thinking of propositions as being structured. So mm -hmm. as you're probably aware, right, a big problem that's plagued the structure view is the unity problem, yeah. right? Like how do you, what is it that unifies, uh, you know, structure propositions and you want to make it, you want to make whatever unifies them, not turn them into facts, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you don't wear the false propositions then and things like that, right. right? That was like the famous kind of Russell principles mathematics thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's another um, criticism that's been leveled against the traditional conception. When the traditional conception is construed in a structured way, like especially, I mean, if you think of somebody like Frege, right? Frege had structured propositions. Yeah. Um, and when it's construed in that way, then one criticism of it is, well, look, it's facing this unity problem. Um, but a way the naturalistic view solves the unity problem is by saying, like, look, here's what's uniting the constituents. They're united by these acts of predication. And the good thing about acts of predication, right, is that um, they can be false, right? They can be uh, they can go wrong, right? You, yeah. They can misfire. So you can easily see how you get false propositions in there by saying, like, oh, you predicated you know, the property of being read of this blue thing, right? And so that's what your representation, you're representing this uh, thing as being a color that, you know, it isn't. And um, so that's where you get the represent representational powers of this false proposition, the act type of predicating blueness of this cup or something, whatever right. it is. Right, right. So, so I'm wondering um, in that, on that view, um, I mean, I'm following all this, like the acts of predication, that's what's doing, that's what's unifying. And then that's, that's where the intentionality comes from. But wouldn't, wouldn't the act of predication, um, wouldn't that be like derivative intentionality from a thought? Wouldn't the thought be like the fundamental thing there? Unless I, I don't know, unless you have like an act of predication without a thought behind it, maybe. Well, I guess the idea is that the act of predication is the thought, like the thought when you're mm. thinking like, oh, this um, you know, this bottle is blue. What is that thought? That's your predicating being blue of the bottle. Okay. So it's just, yeah, it's like one thing. What, because I can have that thought without predicating it. Um, oh, maybe not. Okay. So maybe if, maybe it's just, that's just like the speech act of maybe I'm, I can predicate in my mind. No, you, good. Actually, what you actually, you're, what you're saying is good. So you're actually, um, um, latching onto a debate within this uh, camp, cool. right? Okay. So there is a debate um, about whether predication is neutral or forceful, hmm. right? So um, Scott Soames thinks that predication is neutral, okay. right? And so he thinks of like um, predication is just like entertainment kind of, um, it plays the role of entertainment. Huh. Um, 
And um, like Peter Hanks thinks predication is forceful, right? Um, and so uh, when you, so you're endorsing, so, you're, so when you're predicating, you're like, you know, affirming something is true, right? Yeah, right. Um, it's not just like, hmm, let me think about this, you know, whether or not this water bottle is blue, or let me like entertain the possibility or something like that, right? It's actually the predication itself is forceful. But then he runs into problems because that's, you know, he runs into what's called, you know, the Frank Gage problem, um, right? And that was a famous problem that plagued the idea that propositions are judgments, right? Because, mm. um, you know, think about all the different kind of logically complex propositions that we can, um, you know, entertain, right? Like right. conditionals and negations and things like that, disjunctions, right? Whereas like, you're not necessarily um, judging true the proposition, right? right? Um or the constituents of the proposition, right? Like the 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 disjuncts or the antecedent or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, Hanks has to do kind of some fancy footwork with his view. He introduces these whole like cancellation contexts and things like that. To kind of, I mean, I'm not going to get into that, obviously. Sure, sure. But you know, read Hanks for the details. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and then he so he has a debate with Soames about this because um, Soames gets criticized because if um, let me see if I can remember how this goes exactly. So if, if predication is neutral, um, that looks like um, he is then just kind of um, trying to like, uh, you know, what's, what's the expression? Oh my gosh, but I can't remember what it is. He's trying to eat his cake and have it. Oh, have his cake and eat it too. Have his yeah. cake and eat it too or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. Gosh. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, that he can't really help himself to this idea of like neutral predication because that's, so if there's like, if predication is neutral, right. Um, it looks like when you say that you're back to like a Fregian sort of view of propositions, like here's this yeah. proposition that's out there representing the water bottle as right. being blue and having these true conditions. Right. Yeah. Um, and your mind, you're just kind of seeing it and latching onto it. It's like, it's out there as a, as a unified whole yeah. and your mind's kind of latching onto it. I don't know why I don't know why. The, no, that's good. You know, I like that. That's good imagery. The it's like there's a planet and you're, um, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Um, but um, uh, but you can't do that if you want if you want predication to play this role of grounding right. representation, right? Because then yeah. really predication is not explaining anything. Um, it's not explaining how the proposition is representing the world as being a certain way if it's neutral. So right. I think that's kind of, you know, the argument against Soames' neutral view um, and then the argument against Hanks is um, forceful view is the Fregagich problem. Yeah. And then he has to do sort of, he has to introduce cancellation context. And a lot of people are very skeptical about, uh, about that. Okay. So yeah, I don't, I, the Hanks one, I'll have to look into to even make sense of that. Mm -hmm. But, but the, um, the Soames one makes a lot of sense to me. Cause it's like, yeah, you're act, you're saying your, your whole project is trying to get away from propositions being uh, brutally representational or, or representational in themselves, however you catch it up. But it looks like if you want to stay neutral, then they have to be. So, so you're kind of canceling out your own view, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, man, I love this stuff. I need to like get back into the literature on it. I, I really, it's so hard trying to tell my wife like, yeah, I want to talk about propositions today. I'm going to go and like sit in the corner and think about them and then try to explain all these views. And it's like, what sometimes you just lose it. And you're like, what am I talking about again? I forgot. Oh wait, no, I'm talking about propositions because I have to have them in order to communicate. Um, so 
I don't know if, if we've already kind of like broached it or not, but um, in the paper, you talk about Soam's uh, theory of naturalized cognitive propositions, NCP. Have we already got there or, or um, can, can you lay that one out for us as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I think we've kind of gone over it, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he just thinks that um, there are these um, fundamental, you know, acts of predication. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, and those acts of predication, you know, are, represent things as being a certain way. Um, yeah. And then uh, propositions are um, derivative from that. I mean, I, I'm sort of hesitant to say, like, I kind of want to look and see what, I, <laughs> yeah. what, what yeah. the, uh, how the view is defined, um, because I, it's been a while and I, I did, I, I it's, it's paper I wrote years ago and I, um, I don't really remember it. Yeah. I did yeah. read over it I, this weekend because I was like, I need to read this again because I don't even yeah. remember what I said. Um, I took it to be, I took it to be but, like a, a particular instance or particular theory in natural, uh, in propositional naturalism that you're just kind of like picking out. And then in arguing against this view, you show like why all, all propositional naturalism uh, might fail. Right. Yeah. So he's saying um, that, um, right. Propositions are repeatable, purely representational cognitive acts. Um, and right. So uh entertaining a proposition is performing it. So the intentionality of the act of entertaining is the intentionality of the proposition itself. Um, and he says agents represent in a primary sense by predicating properties of objects, whereas cognitive act types represent in an extended or derivative sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that sort of covers it. I mean, gets you the, the basics of his views. I just didn't want to um, yeah. attribute something to him that wasn't quite right. Especially because there's like, different views in this area that are slightly different. So right. um, um, like Hanks um, has a view that Indrick Ryland also defends a cognitive um, act view of propositions. And so just trying to keep them all straight and not mix them up with each other. But yeah, yeah I use Holmes because um, he gives the most explicit sort of existence conditions for propositions. Like he, um, so Jeff Spakes originally, so um, Jeff King, um, Soames and Jeff Speaks had uh, written this book together, New Thinking About Propositions. Mm -hmm. They defended their different views of propositions. And in that book, um, Jeff Speaks had raised the objection to Soames, like, hey, you know, are, are there going to be enough propositions on your view? I mean, this is a very natural objection to come up with, right? Like, right. wait a minute, if these are, you know, um, if you've got these acts of predication, um, token acts predication have to like ground all the representational properties of propositions. How are you going to like, what about all these propositions people would never think of? What about like propositions about really big numbers and things like that? And so Soames had answered that in a, you know, pretty sophisticated way using his kind of maneuvers from, uh, you know, denying serious actualism and also his um, um, appeal to systematicity. Um, so he was able to kind of evade a lot of the kind of, first pass objections of that nature. And so um, that's why I really wanted to focus on his view because I thought like he's already kind of answered a lot of the first pass objections. And so I can, you know, show how like even his view is going to fall prey to this problem. And if his does, then the others yeah. are going to as well. I tried to generalize the argument um, in another section to try to show that it would apply to any view that shares this core feature of Soames's view. Um, yeah. But just using his is kind of like the, the illustration right to, to latch on to right. because he he was the one who already um addressed some of these issues 
Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. So um, can you can you broach the scarcity objection for us? Yeah, so basically, um, just the idea is, um, if there are propositions, right, that, um, or if there is a proposition, I guess I should say, um, that is such that its representational uh, properties cannot be explained by appeal to the powers of uh, finite thinkers, yeah. then basically Soames is in trouble, right? There's a, then there are going to be propositions that his view doesn't account for, right? Um, right. They're left out, right, of his view. Um, so trying to, you know, kind of force him uh, to see that his view is inadequate by saying, look, uh, even you will want to acknowledge that there are these propositions, um, yeah. but you're not going to be able to account for them unless you were to say, oh, you know, there's, uh, you know, a possible infinite uh, mind yeah. that can think that. Um, but that then undercuts the whole sort of naturalistic motivation, right? Like, right. let's explain yeah. uh, the whole point, right, of this view is not wanting to have a kind of a spooky theory of intentionality and wanting to be able to explain all representation in terms of, um, in it ultimately in some sort of naturalistically acceptable way. Um, but then that just, so that's, you know, that's kind of how the objection works against him. And so just trying to think of an example of like um, some proposition that he would be forced to acknowledge um, and say, look, there's no way that a finite thinker is going to um, be able to perform this act of predication. Yeah. Um, that's so, that's so good. So, yeah. So can you lay us out? Cause I, I'm, I'm doing my best here working on like math and philosophy of math type stuff. Um, it just, it's tough for me. So like, I'm I, this, this whole part of the essay, I was like, seems right, but I don't know that I could represent it myself. Can you help us? Like what, what's the, what's a, a good instance of a, of a proposition that, uh, will not, uh, be able to be accounted for on Soames's theory? So, okay. So like I said, he already um, dealt with um, this kind of really big number kind of objection or like, what about like, I mean, because you can think of like really obvious objections, right? Like infinite conjunctions, infinite disjunctions, right? Huge, you know, numbers, you know, that, or whatever, go on, you know, the full expansion of pi or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, And so he's, he was like, no, like I, I can, I can deal with these. I can, I can, I can account for these. Um, I mean, and you could kind of press him about that and say like, well, you know, this is cheating to like appeal to system assistance here and things like that. But I was like, well, like, let's just let him have that because I think I don't need it. I think I can come up with an example that doesn't rely on that. And actually I have to say that um, I was having a lot of conversations with, so like my husband, John, uh, John Keller is a philosopher and um, he's more of a metaphysics person, I guess, and I'm more of a philosophy of language person, but we have a lot of overlap. Um, yeah. and, you know, we co-author things together. So I was talking about this with him a lot. Um, <laughs> a little bit obsessed for a while about this and <laughs> talking about it. And he was like, oh, hey, I have an idea for you. What about the axiom of choice? And I was like, what? Mm. And so it really, he deserves credit. And I did. I did credit him. I, I was like, you will get a footnote. <laughs> <laughs> That's so um, awesome. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to take, take credit for that. So it was his yeah. idea to, to okay. think, to use the axiom of choice. And I was like, Oh, that's brilliant. You know, actually. Um, so 
you know, it's just in standard axiomatizations. I can never say that word. I hope I'm saying it right. I think I'm I might glad have missed yeah. Um, yeah. of set theory, right? That um, you've got Zermelo Frankel set theory with the axiom of choice, ZFC, right? That's kind of like, this is what you learn when you learn set theory. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically the axiom of choice says that um, for any collection of mutually disjoint non-empty sets, uh, there's a choice set containing exactly one element from each member of the collection, right? So it's just like basically you're, you know, um, choosing, you've got this big, you know, uh, what, why do we have to talk about the size? I don't know. You've got this big set of yeah. sets, right? There's, that contains all these sets. And then like, so take, you know, and they're, they're disjoint, right? Um, and not empty, but that's important. And then yeah. you take, take an element from each one. Now you've got this new set, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it's just a kind of a generative principle that gets you all these sets. And the idea is that they're intuitively arbitrary mm -hmm. set, right? Because like, it's just kind of random, like what's right. in there. And so that was the kind of inspiration. The inspiration for using that was just trying to get around the systematicity thing, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you think about it, like, okay, um, think about how we grasp sets, right? Um well, we can grasp infinite sets, right? Um, yeah. Like the set of all prime numbers. Well, how do you grasp that set? Because you know what it is to be a prime number, right? Right. There's this well-defined predicate, you know, being a prime number and you know what that is. And so you know, you know, the criteria for being in yeah. that set. And we can even, we can even distinguish between sizes of infinite sets. Like this one's right. going to have more numbers, even though they're both infinite. Right. I can grasp yeah. that. Yeah. I can compare and contrast them even. But yeah, and we can, we can, um, uh, right, we can grasp sets that are, um, you know, um, we can grasp the set of real numbers, right? Um, yeah. And, um, and we can grasp, um, you know, the set of natural numbers by like, you just kind of knowing the recursive enumeration, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, so there's lots of ways that um, we can grasp infinite sets, right? Yeah. And, and that, so that's not a problem, right? Because, so you could just say, okay, um, he, he can easily account for this, you know, grasp of, of the infinite. Um, but um, what choice gives you are these infinite sets that um, don't, aren't necessarily going to um, be um, sets that you can get uh, with this, a well-defined predicate or any sort of recursive enumeration procedure. So, um, I mean, I gave a specific example of um, some sets that you, so there's there's sets that you can get from the axiom of choice that you don't need the axiom of choice for, right? Okay. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but then there are some sets that you can't get without the axiom of choice, right? Okay. And so yeah. I was like, those are the sets I'm going to focus on because if there's another way of getting at the set that doesn't rely on choice, then you're going to, it's not going to be inaccessible in the relevant way. Right. 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 And then um, you might so, not even, then you wouldn't need the axiom of choice anyways. Right. Right. You would, don't need it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I needed to, to point out sets to like focus on sets that are what I call choice only. Mm -hmm. um, and actually um, talking to Christopher Menzel really helped me a lot. Um, yeah. I, I talked to him a lot about the stuff and he, he helped me a lot with this because um, it does get pretty difficult and confusing. Yeah. Um, but there's a, um, an interesting paper too. Um, I hate mispronouncing these. 
I think his name is Jose Ferreros. Um, you, you can mispronounce on this. I, I, I call it Parker's Pensies. So everyone's going to be used to uh, mispronunciation on this podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry. I, I feel bad when I, um, when I do that, but, um, but on, um, not can't remember the name of the paper, but it's basically kind of making this point about how um, choice gets you these arbitrary. Yeah. It's intuitively arbitrary sets. I mean, it's, that's sort of the rough intuitive, but um I, I was able to come up with a specific example of um, these Vitali sets um, that are um, subsets of the closed interval um, between zero and one. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, real numbers. And um, they are, um, I mean, there's just this whole you know thing about they're not Lebesgue measurable. And so um, that shows that they're, um, you need, they can be um, proved in, to exist in ZFC, but not just in ZF without choice. Okay. Um, so they're they're a good example of. I mean, it, the, it really doesn't matter what the details are, and you don't even need to like follow them at all. Right. The only thing that matters is here is some uh, here's an example of sets that you need the axiom of choice for. And they're choice um, only. Yeah. Yeah, they're choice only, and so that means they're like these intuitively arbitrary sets. So there's no way, like, there's not like, let's come up with some like predicate you know, that uh, all the members of this, all and only the members of the set fall under, or let's come up with some procedure to get all, like they're infinite, right? And there's not, they don't have either of those, they're not accessible in either of those ways. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, you know, um, it, it was just for the sake of like having an example. And like I said, just kind of like trying to force um, Scott Soames, <laughs> like something is like, he has to, like, there's no way he can't like, you know, he's going to have to acknowledge these. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah, there are people that do like the action of choice is weird and a lot of people don't like it. And there are people that reject it. And there's like, um, you know, different set theories that, that don't have choice and stuff like that. Um, and I have another paper on this where I kind of talk a little bit more about that. But um, but to, for this debate, I just think like it doesn't matter. Okay. Because if we're philosophers and this isn't a philosophy of math debate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're philosophers. And like, if you're doing like philosophy of language or theories of propositions, like you can't, like, you don't want your theory of propositions to be like, um, forcing you to adopt this like non-standard position about set theory. Right. right. Yeah. It should be able to encompass what the, what the mathematicians are saying or the, the philosophers or math. Are saying. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you should be sense. able to, to just kind of like, go with, I mean, and obviously again, like, Somebody could just say like, well, I, I have such strong like arguments for this view that I'm just going to like go with it and, you know, adopt some alternate set theory or something like that. But right. um, there's always a way to resist, you know, there's always more bullets you can bite. Sure. But I know that he, uh, Soames wouldn't want to do that. So, okay. yeah. Perfect. That works. Yeah. It runs against him. Um, yeah. That's so good. Um, can we talk? Can we talk like dependency? Sure. Yeah. So um, I got the definition here. It's just a de dependency. A proposition P represents only if for some possible finite agent A, the representation of P is derived from the representation of A, uh, some act or state of A. Um, so uh, you're, you argue that this, is, this dependency is like, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a necessary condition or something, but it's like, Inter integral for uh, propositional naturalism. Can you can you help us understand this? 
Yeah, so basically the propositional naturalism is going to run a trace the representational power of propositions always to something um, naturalistically acceptable. And so yeah. that's why I'm like, it has to be some possible finite agent. And yeah. again, I'm saying possible because I'm allowing the like non-actualist yeah, uh, stuff, stuff to fly. I'm just yeah. like, I mean, because I think there's so many places where you could put on the brakes with with this um, view and say like, hey, wait a minute, no. Like, I mean, in terms of this argument, right? Like right. there's so many, but I, I was kind of trying to concede as much as possible um, to Soames and not making an, I was like, I don't want to make this an argument about actualism because that's just right. kind of be kind of boring. Yeah. Um, and, and so um, let's just see how far we can go granting him all of his, you know, commitments that he has. And so that's why, you know, it talks about that, but just saying that like all any, any propositional naturalist view is going to have to be, um, uh, have to accept something like this principle. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so that means if there are transcendent propositions, then there are going to be, um, uh, then, then that principle can't be right. Yeah, I love that. And I, I really do. I, I love the way you, you set it up because you're, you're just granting stuff left and right. And you're, you're trying to be as broad as possible to, to catch as many people as you can with the argument, I think, which is really fun. Um, so, so then uh, the whole idea of, you know, the scarcity objection, and the axiom of choice and ZFC was to, just to get to the fact that there are transcendent propositions. And then that's like the key. Like once you have a transcendent proposition, now uh, dependency is false and um, you know, some uh, uh, NCP, uh, uh, yeah, naturalized cognitive propositions, like that's false. So, like you just, the whole move is to get to these uh, transcendent propositions. And then from there, does that seem right? Like once you get there, like the dominoes just fall in place? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I hope so. That was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the idea. Um, and really you could go either way. So, I mean, I have another paper um, arguing against these views and saying like, Look, if you don't accept the possibility of an infinite intellect, this is just a reductio of the view. Yeah. Uh, so it really can go either way. Either it's a reductio of sort of the whole, you know, naturalized cognitive proposition view, or it's an argument for something like God, right? That this uh, an infinite, or at least a possible infinite intellect. And then, I mean, I guess right, a possible infinite intellect, depending on your other kind of modal views and things like that, and your. Um, you know, what do you think about like the modal ontological argument and things like right. that, that yeah. the uh, actual infinite intellect. Yeah, that is super cool. I, I actually, I, until you just said that I hadn't thought about this in context of the modal ontological argument, but yeah, this could, this could help that argument, you know, cause there's like the, the parody problem of like why, you know, maybe we're at a stalemate between God being, uh, uh, necessary or necessarily non-existent. And so maybe this could help tip. And uh, I guess you wouldn't need the ontological argument for this. But yeah, you could say, keep adding them together, which would be fun. And that's like the argument from so many arguments maybe uh, in this book. That's so fascinating. I, I really like, so um, can you, let's go like, we, we went in super deep and I even got lost a little bit here. Um, can we go like like way up and just sketch it again? So like uh, beginning, f like get us to transcendent propositions and then it should be pretty quick from there to a transcendent mind, right? Um, just like overview, like. Yeah, so um, if you think that um, all like, so if you think about, if you have this idea that truth, 
like being true and false, right? I um, mean, truth apt, right? Um, involves some sort of representation, right? Yeah. Um, that's one step, right? Because like I said, there are going to be people that think, oh, you've got these truth bearers. They don't have to be representational, right? right. So the first link is between truth and representation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty intuitive. I think a lot of people uh, would buy that, right? Yeah. Um, and so then how do you think about representation? Do you think, does all representation have to derive from something mental, yeah. right? Um, and if you think yes, right, then that gets you, in, into either a sort of Soames or Hanks kind of view or psych, psychologistic sort of view, right? Yeah. A modern philosophy kind of view, propositions or judgments, right? So, but you've got some view like that where either propositions are thoughts or they're deriving the representationality from thoughts. But either way, you've got thoughts in this like really important role because without the thoughts, you don't have the propositions, right? Either because the propositions are thoughts or they're dependent on the thoughts for their representational properties. Right. Right. So then, um, okay, fine. Well, uh, but if you, if you think there are truths, right, that, um, uh, a human thinker or like a finite thinker, I guess, you know, like maybe there's some intelligent aliens out there or something yeah. like that. I don't know. Right. right? So to kind right. of like leave it open. Right. But if you think there are truths that no finite thinker can represent or grasp or whatever, um, you know, cognize, whatever word you want to use there, right? Then um, that's kind of opening the door to, well, now if you want the representation of of any truth bearer to be grounded in a thought, now you need, you now you need a thinker that can think that kind of a thought, right? right? You need a thinker with that kind of mental power, right? And if it's like this infinite thing, right? Like, the, so the example of the sets, so, so in the exa- specifically, the example I used would be a singular proposition, yeah. right, about one of these infinite sets that um, doesn't have any sort of, um, there's no procedure, right, that's, um, uh, that you could, that, that, that's finitely learnable, right, that yeah. would enable you to grasp that thought, right? Ax- axiomizable um, so, or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so. Um, you it, it's in, it's plausible you need an infinite thinker to to think those thoughts right or to grasp those propositions or whatever to to ground the representation of those propositions and so that's where you get uh the infinite um thinker who would be something like god right yeah yeah i'm i'm so glad that we we that i had you on to talk about this because i i misunderstood it until until you've you've helped me see this that it just needs to be a singular proposition about an infinite set that is not that doesn't correspond to some kind of code or axiom or whatever so that, that's this is so good i really i really really like this i'm gonna have to listen back to this episode and you've you've thrown so much like good stuff that i'm gonna have to dig into um so that, that was a really helpful overview there's a there's a like a second version for of the argument from intentionality that i i have um a slide for just for anyone who who is like following and and, and wants to see it in you know proposition propositional form again so it's just um propositions represent essentially that's the premise uh, pro- uh two only agents represent fundamentally three so propositions depend for the their existence on agents four there are propositions that no finite agent entertains uh you know transcendent propositions that we talked about five the representation of transcendent propositions is independent of the representation of finite agents Six, so transcendent propositions cannot depend on finite agents from three and five. Seven, uh, 
therefore there's an infinite agent. It's just, it's so good. It's so fun. Um, have you, ha, do you know if like, has Scott Soames, like, has he seen this? Do you know? Have well, you interacted um, with him at all? I, yeah. So, um, uh, so when was this? Like, I don't know if it was 2014 or um, something. There was a um, propositions workshop in um, Leeds. Okay. And um, so I presented there and um, Jeff Speaks was there and Scott Soames and Jeff King. Um, and I believe Frederica Moltmann was also there. Um, mm. And um, so um, I presented the this early version of this argument, not the one that's in this um, volume, yeah. for God, um, but uh, sort of the reductio version. Of the oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so yeah. Um, uh, so I did present that uh, at that workshop. So he was able to, um, you know, to hear that argument. And he did say that he was worried about it at the time. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> so I was like, oh, good. Um, really cool. um, but, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion at the time, too, about like, oh, the axiom of choice and all this, how it's going to work. But I don't think, I think at the time, I don't remember if I had Vitaly sets in there at the time. Like, I think it was more just kind of like, oh, you know, the axiom of choice is going to get you these sets. And I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I hadn't gotten as much into the weeds. And then I kind of, you know, thought about it more and talked to some people and, um, and, and fleshed it out a bit more to, tr to try to make it more kind of give it more of a punch, give it, make it more concrete. Right. And like harder yeah. to kind of wiggle out of. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so he, he was familiar with that. And I don't really know if he's ever, um, so like I have this paper, then I have another paper in Arcanus, um with the other argument. Um, so I don't know if he's looked at them or not. I have no yeah. idea. But yeah, that's so cool. Um, well, so when before we got into the argument, you were saying that that maybe you don't buy all the the premises of the argument, and that's something that's really fascinating that I really like as I've been learning philosophy myself and getting into it, like. Philosophers, a lot of times, will will present an argument and just say, like, hey, if this sticks, it sticks. You know, maybe I'm not saying that this is the end all be all or anything like that. I, I actually really appreciate that. I've been trying to do that myself with some some of the uh, papers I've been presenting recently where I'm like, you know, if if you go in for this, then this follows. But maybe you don't have to go in for that. So um, what do you what do you think of this argument? Like, do you think that, that this should lead to someone believing in God? Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> So, like I said, I, I hold a lot of views in philosophy lately. Like, I, I mean, um, so I think that here's what I think. I think if you think that um, all representation um, has to come, has to be um, come from minds, right? Yeah. Um, if if um, the only fundamental representation is done by agents, I guess, um, then. I, I think it's going to be hard to get all the representation you need from yeah. definitely from humans, but really from any finite minds. Um, yeah. And so I think that if you, if you do hold that view, which I, I think is not an implausible view, then I think that this argument should convince you that there must be something more. I mean, I mean, I, I could see people resisting it being God and things like that and, and, you know, kind of going different ways, but um but I think that, I mean, I, I guess I'm still, um, I, I kind of am partial to the traditional conception of propositions. Um, okay. And so that's why I'm not as, as moved by this argument. But I also realized, like, I, I feel like, so I'm kind of a Platonist and stuff like that. And, and I, 
I do think there's a tension with that theism. And I've been working on the whole God and abstract objects thing too. That's like another sort of nice. I love that side project. Um, I, I do think it's, it's hard to be, um, it's hard to work all that. I think that these issues are really hard, but I think it's fun. Like I like the challenge. Like, yeah, I actually like the constraints, like the fact that I'm, you know, a theist of a certain sort and things like that, like means I have these constraints I have to work with. But to me, it's just like creates this challenge. It's like a fun, like, um, problem that you have to solve. It's like roll yeah. up your sleeves and figure out how's this all going to work, right? How yeah. are you going to hold all these things together? And and I, I like I like that. So yeah, I really like that too. I I was um I was when I when I was coming into philosophy at first, I was maybe a little bit nervous about that, and I was like, man, I don't know. It seems like maybe that's not maybe maybe the philosopher ought to just like let go of all constraints and just follow the truth wherever it goes. And then as I'm learning more about like Christian philosophy, it's like well, Christian. Christian philosophy, theistic philosophy, like it's philosophy on hard mode because you have convictions and you're like, I have to, I can't believe that. And so what's, what's the reason like to, how do I make sense of this and my faith or, and, you know, and this belief that God exists. And um, yeah, like you said, it's, it is really fun to get into that. Um, I wonder even if this, if you, if you do like this argument and you are a theist, this might be an argument against believing that like God is finite even. So I, I believe that Keith Yandel thinks that God is not infinite or thought that God is not infinite. I, I believe, I hopefully, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting him. And he was a Platonist as well. So yeah, maybe he could just, it'd be fun to think through that kind of stuff too. Like if you hold a view of God, that's not, that, that is finite. Well, this argument might run against that. And you say, well, maybe you should believe in an infinite God because there's these, you know, because of the axiom of choice, you know? Well, I don't know if that's his view. I thought his view was that um, God isn't necessary. I thought it was just that God's contingent. That, I believe it's both. Is, that, is it both? Is it finite too? I, believe, I, I didn't know I that. I believe so. I know Swinburne says, you know, that's like really popular. That Swinburne um, also believes that God is not necessary. And I, I know the two were on board with that, but I believe he didn't think that God was infinite. I think I think there was like a problem with the idea of infinity. I think that he was saying like, that's not coherent, but. Hmm. Uh, if there's a Yandel scholar out there, please, you know, I'll, I'll be love to be corrected on that. Yeah. Somebody needs to tell the mathematicians. Yeah. That he isn't coherent. Yeah. Right. Um, I think for, for a being to be uh, infinite and, and have a nature maybe. Yeah, no, I was sorry. I was teasing that. that yeah. wasn't no, really no. Fair. I'm yeah. sure that he had, he'd already <laughs> thought of that and, yeah. and everything, Super sharp but yeah, yeah, no, I didn't know that. That's, so that's, I could totally uh, be misrepresenting yeah. him. I, I I have seen I'm looking at his books right now, and I'm like, please be in there. I think it's in there. I'll look <laughs> that up and, and maybe correct the record if I'm wrong. It's um, fine. I, I forget everything all the time. So like I said, like I was I had to look at this again, and I'm still like, wait a minute. Let me let me look at this. Maybe yeah. I don't want to make sure I don't say the wrong thing. So yeah, um, yeah no, I, I hear you. There's just too many. It's, there's so much, too much information. Some, yeah, it's amazing. Um, well, Dr. Keller, what what are some things that you're uh, that you're working on nowadays? Um, so I'm working on um, John Henry Newman, actually. Oh wow! Um, working on some some stuff on his um, his idea about um, real and notional ascent, his thoughts about that. Um, okay. So I'm I'm working on that, and I'm also working on um, uh, John. My husband John and I are co-authoring a paper. Um, it's on um, like a, a form of semantic anti-realism. Okay. I, we keep changing what we call the view. So actually I'm not sure what the latest yeah. um, uh, name of the view is, but um, for it's, it's, there's a, um, 
volume on linguistic idealism that's coming out. So we're writing a paper for that together, which we really need to get on that actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but I'm writing and I'm doing a couple of Newman papers. Hmm. Um, I think that's all right now that I'm actively writing, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That, sounds, that sounds awesome. Are there any, uh, are there any things that you and your husband, any philosophical positions that you guys are totally at odds with each other on? Um, I know when, when I started grad school, um, I was a compatibilist and he was a libertarian and I've since converted. Oh no. I, and I'm a libertarian you. now. Oh no. Okay. Um, but are you a compatibilist? Yeah. Sad. Everyone type an F in the comments for respect. We lost one here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, I don't, I think free will is really hard. And again, like I said, I hold most of my views in philosophy pretty lightly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't really know what are we at odds about. Um, I'm a pretty hardcore classical theist, and I think he's um, not, you know, as as sanguine about about some <laughs> aspects of classical theism as, as I am. Sure. Um, you know, I'm just kind of like all in divine simplicity, all that kind of stuff, and I think he's a little more concerned. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if we'd say we're at odds about it. Um, but um I can hold it differently yeah it's a different i mean thing. i think he's more like he thinks there are more worries about it and he's you know um but um yeah i don't know like what do we well so with that like i i uh i want to affirm simplicity i don't see i'm coming out of out of theology into philosophy and it seems like all the theologians are like dude you got to have simplicity if you want the trinity and then i get over into philosophy and they're all like well, you, what you, simplicity no way you could you don't get the trinity then and right now I, i'm seeing it more as like a liability than than an explanatory you know virtue but i still want to i still want to affirm it but then i really like these conceptual arguments uh in divine you know divine conceptualism type stuff do you see any like like if i affirm your argument which i i like i really do like it um it's it's hard to make sense of simplicity with God having like these ideas that. Yes, definitely. Right? Yeah, actually, I was working on a paper about that very thing, right? Like, how do you? Um, so there's a push to, um, um, well, you know, a classical theist sort of push to want to make God the source of all, um, you know. Um, whatever things play the abstract object roles, right? Right. right. Um, to ground that all in God because of divine aseity, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, but then also from classical theism, it's like you want to affirm simplicity. Yeah. And so that does seem like a problem because it's like there are these distinctions. It looks like there are these distinctions in God, like there are these different thoughts and that. I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, with a lot of these problems, I'm like, yet we know that there were these, you know, people like Aquinas and stuff like that, that affirmed uh, simplicity yeah. and aseity. Um, I mean, Aquinas was kind of, I guess, not, well, he definitely wasn't a Platonist. Okay? Yeah. So um, he didn't have that uh, as problem, but he did talk about like, you know, um, Actually, now I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. And some Thomas is going to be like, as soon as you talk wrong. about Aquinas, I know <laughs> <laughs> she butchered Aquinas. Um, no, I mean, but I mean, I think, I mean, he, God's um, omniscient, God knows things on, on Aquinas' view, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think like, um, 
there's got to be like, I, I always say like, there's got to be a way of like making this work. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess you could just say like, well, maybe Aquinas just had an incoherent view or something like that. Or yeah. uh, the fact that he wasn't a Platonist means he didn't have to do this other stuff that you have to do. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, I think it is really hard. It's really challenging, but I also think like I'm, I'm partial to a view of God that says that our language and thoughts about God are kind of always going to misrepresent God in some way. Right? Cause of their, um, the analogical predication. Something like that. I mean, okay. I have kind of a different way of spelling it out, but but something like that. And so I think that, um, you know, when we say things like, oh, th these are divine thoughts or like God knows this or something like that. Like it's never going to be um, there's always going to be something. Um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for inapt about it. Right. Okay. Um, about those predications. And so um, that I think helps. <laughs> with the with yeah. the tensions right because um a lot of things you say like oh well well if we say like this person had this thought and that thought, or they know they know p and they know q or whatever like okay there's uh certain things follow from that right mm -hmm. um they can't just be a simple being but like with god i just think that's not necessarily the case because god's way of knowing god's way of thinking is not like ours yeah um and so um so I, I just think too, some of the problems here just come from anthropomorphizing God too much. Okay. Right. Um, then of course you get the whole like, well, well, then what do we mean when we're saying these things? Like, are, are we just completely in there? And so uh, trying to have some sort of middle ground there. And I know a lot of people are skeptical that like, well, we can't really do that. Um, yeah. You're either going to be like, go with univocity or equivocity. Like I do think I want to um, go with some sort of middle ground. Some yes. sort of I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good, good. And so I, but I do think that that can actually help with a lot of these problems. Um, because I think of simplicity and other doctrines like that is, pure, is really more like negative um, doctrines. Sure. Or like really telling you what God is not and like yeah. how you shouldn't be thinking about God and stuff like that. Like if you're, if you're thinking of God like this, you're wrong kind of thing. Um, yeah. But not so much, it's not like, oh, that means God's a marble or something or like God's an atom <laughs> or like, it's like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, that, yeah. I think that's a, that's a really helpful um, clarification about, so for all the theology nerds, it's like, uh, or for those who aren't theology nerds, apophatic theology and cataphatic theology. And, and yes, like, I, th I guess when you are, when you do apophatic, when you do negative theology, you're still kind of saying something positive, but it's not like, it doesn't have to be like this full throttle, like here's, yeah, God is a marble or God, God's like this, yeah, metaphysical, simple, you know, like, yeah, it's just saying he doesn't have parts. Um, which is tough, but this is this is why God and abstract objects is like my favorite puzzle to work on. Um, it keeps me up at night, and which is really tough. But I'm so glad to hear that you're you're uh, you're working on that as well. Um, excited yeah. to see. Yeah, yeah, I was, and I kind of dropped it. But oh no, uh, <laughs> should go back. You know, it is it's a great problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, and I know other like um, I think Michelle Panchuk has a nice paper on this where mm -hmm. um she talks about simplicity and um uh abstract objects and stuff and i can't remember i think it's from 2016 but i think she has okay. some something on this that might be worth checking out if you're interested in that problem yeah i think i'm i'm looking around for it. i think i have that somewhere um but anyways yeah uh dr kelly thank, thanks so much for all your time here this was really fascinating and really fun um if somebody wanted to check out more of your work or, or your husband john's work is there is there a place that i can find your stuff so i'm on phil papers i have sure. a phil papers profile i have a website too but i don't Actually, John made my website and I have no idea. So I feel like I don't want to like take responsibility for, but I mean, I'm sure he did a good job and all, but yeah. like, I don't really know. And it's, 
don't know if it's updated. Um, but I have Phil Papers and I have an Academia page too. So awesome. um, yeah. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll link that in the description, folks. So if you're hearing this now, uh, go ahead and check the description for uh, more work from Dr. Keller. And uh, and I'll throw in John's as well, too. Um, you know, one flesh type stuff here. That'd be really fun. Um, th thanks so much for all your time, uh, folks. That's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.